Let's pray. Father, as we come to the end of this message series, the emails from Jesus, we pray that as we have gone through these seven different churches, that we have learned some things not only about what church is all about, what kind of churches you look for, but that we've also learned some things about ourselves. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start by asking you just a bunch of questions about church. Uh, I've always loved church, always been a part of church, grew up in a church. You know, those of you that know my story know that I was raised by my grandparents. And uh, thanks to a wonderful tornado which destroyed the farm, uh, we moved into the uh, giant city of Seward, Nebraska, population 3,180, where my grandpa got the wonderful job of being the janitor, custodian, maintenance engineer, I guess you'd call it today, for St. John's Lutheran Church School and Parish Hall. Loved it. I would go with him every Saturday to help clean the church. I particularly liked going uh, after a wedding because then I would get to vacuum. I like vacuuming up stuff you can see and hear. Rice. You know, I love that sound. We had hymn boards, kind of like these things over here, but they were really big ones, and we had to put wooden things in, and we had to hang one on top of the other because there were two services at least. And and then when nobody was looking, I'd go turn on the microphones, and I would stand up in the pulpit, or I'd stand at the lectern, I'd bang on and preach, and, you know, hellfire and damnation and all that good stuff. And, and then I'd go up into the balcony, and then I would uh, sail paper airplanes out, but that's not wise. But then I would sit down, I would play the organ. <laughs> I couldn't play, but I played it anyway. I just had a great time in church. Don't remember the time I've never been a part of a church. I've even worked for many years as a church consultant, you know, where they send you into another church to help figure out what's wrong with that church or what's right with that church. In fact, in a week or so, I get to go into a fairly significant-sized church up in the Chicago area and tell them what's wrong with their church staff. <laughs> that ought to be interesting, huh? But in all of this, I've kind of wondered, <coughs> what kind of church is it that Jesus prefers? I mean, if Jesus were going to choose a church today... What church would he choose? Would it be Baptist? Would it be, would he choose a Methodist church? Would he choose Lutheran? And if he would choose Lutheran, which kind? You know, there are only like 28 different versions in America of Lutherans. They can't all be right. Well, we're right, right? How about Catholic? Do you know that there's like at least three different forms of Catholicism today, believe it or not, there are Roman Catholics who, when the Pope sneezes, they all say, God bless you. And then there are American Catholics who say, well, the Pope's an okay God, but we're going to do whatever we want to. And believe it or not, there is a charismatic wing of the Catholic Church, hand-waving, tongue-speaking Catholics, if you can believe it. How about Presbyterian? Boy, be careful if you ask people about Presbyterian, because there are at least two different kinds, and they, boy, they are just about as far apart as you can get. And I don't even want to say about the Episcopalians after what they did this last week. And which kind of church would he choose? Well, maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe we should ask, does Jesus, would Jesus join a country church? I'm not talking about, you know, Garth Brooks kind of country. I'm just talking about out, of, out in the middle of nowhere country. Would he, would he join some big mega church like Fellowship Church in Grapevine, Texas? Or would he prefer a little house church or... Maybe a, a city church. In fact, there's a city church. In fact, it's called City Church right around the bend over here on Texas Boulevard. Worships on Saturday night. Or would he like a multi-site church? 
You know, what do you like it in one town and they had another site in another town, you know, where they could do some things. Would he like a denominational church? You know, would it have to be Lutheran or Baptist or whatever? But what if it was just a, an independent Christian church? Or, or would he like a brand new church? Is that the kind of church you'd like? Or would he kind of like a, an old one? You know, those white things that come up with the steeple and the cross at the top and stuff like that. But maybe that's still the wrong question. Maybe Jesus prefers in book liturgy. Beloved Lord, let us draw near with a clean heart and confess our sins to God our Father. You know, he'd like that. Maybe he'd like chanting. I can't remember how that goes anymore. <laughs> Would he like contemporary? Would he be charismatic? Would he like a large building? Would he, would he just as soon worship in a storefront somewhere? Or maybe in an apartment complex, or maybe in a, a shanty or a shed somewhere, or, or maybe in a gigantic cathedral. Well, thankfully, we don't have to really wonder what kind of church he, he prefers. All we need to do is go back to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and we find out exactly the kind of church Jesus prefers. And when we survey those seven churches, we discover that nothing I just listed is mentioned. I know this may give some of you a cardiac arrest, but Lutherans aren't in the Bible. When Jesus looks, he does not look at the outside. He does not check ID cards. What he's looking for are deeper signs of growing faith. He's looking for a fervent love and an abiding hope. He wants his churches to be motivated by love. He wants them founded on the truth. He wants them strong under pressure. And he wants churches that are unashamed of the name of Jesus. Now, if you go to the next screen here, you're going to see the map we've been looking at. Of the seven churches we've looked at so far, remember we started with Ephesus, went up to Smyrna, then to Pergamum, then to Thyatira, then to Sardis. Last week we jumped ahead down to Laodicea, but we're here at Philadelphia. And understand this is Asia Minor, not Pennsylvania. This is Philadelphia. Of all of these seven churches, only two of them, number two, Smyrna and Philadelphia, they were the only two churches that received no condemnation from the Lord. And it's not coincidental, I don't think, that both of these churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, were under some pretty strong opposition by their communities because of their very strong witness to Jesus Christ. And it's always been kind of my observation that kind of hard times oftentimes make for strong churches, especially if your church refuses to compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what Nancy read to you before about Philadelphia, here's a city, it's about 35 miles southeast of Sardis, where they had that Sardis spirit, remember? It's located, you can't really tell it on here, but it's located near a fault line. Uh, and so earthquakes were a constant threat to the community of Philadelphia. Now, you all probably know that Philadelphia means um, brotherly love. That's what we call Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love. It was intended and built primarily as a um, kind of a missionary city to introduce the Greek culture as it came from Macedonia into 
what we know today as Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. Now, it's built between two mountain ranges in kind of a valley. It was literally a doorway to pass through. You had to come through, through Philadelphia in order to get into Galatia or Cilicia or other parts of the country. Um, it was the youngest of all the churches, probably the smallest of all the churches. But even though it was a very small church, by putting them in that location, God opened a huge door to them, provided they stay faithful. And this is the church that Jesus says, I like this place. This is a good place. And so as we go through this today, let's think about our own church and our own worship and our own spiritual lives as we think about it. Now, let's start with just this first point, that Christ himself opens doors. In fact, I've been asked this question as a pastor a lot. And they'll ask me something like this. How do I know when God has opened a door for me? I mean, how would I know? Well, there are, there are many different ways to answer that question. But my simple answer to that always is, you won't know until you've gone through the door, whether that door has been opened. My experience is that the doors God opens for you, whether it be in the workplace or in, let's say, school life or, you know, where you end up going to college or who you marry or all that kind of stuff, whatever door that God opens, the door is pretty obvious. And we just walk through that door. Or sometimes it's like, oh, my gosh, it's an open door. You run through the door. And occasionally, <clears throat> sometimes you need a little shove to go through the door. And the other thing I've noticed about doors that God opens in our lives, He doesn't necessarily always show us the big picture behind the door. It's almost as if the door is open partway, and we can see a little bit of what's there. And our job is to do what? To push that door open, and one step at a time, one foot in front of the other, go wherever He leads us to go. I also have seen where people have looked at doors that were open and they stood there so long that the door closed. Now, I know it's kind of a hokey thing. It was a popular Christian song a number of years ago. When God closes the door, he opens a window. Yeah, maybe. Don't have your fingers on the, on the sill looking through the window before you crawl out. You may have your fingers slammed in it sooner or later, too. But if one door closes, that's Okay. Another door or window, if you prefer, may open. That's okay, too. We may sit a long time waiting for a door to open. That's okay, too. Because what? Jesus is the sovereign door opener. He knows what he's doing. He will open the door for you whenever you need it. Whenever it's the best time, it'll be there for you. I got a pretty sad email about a month ago from a good friend of mine from a former church. And the, the, uh, the subject line of the email was this. Where do I fit in? That's an ominous email, isn't it? Where do I fit in? I'm going to read you the entire email. I just can't comprehend what God is doing. That's it. That was the entire email. If you didn't catch it, I just can't comprehend what God 
is doing. Well, needless to say, I had to say, what does that mean? I mean after all, I'm Lutheran. Isn't what Lutherans say, what does this mean? And it just seems that he had been dealt a pretty crushing blow by some really good friends. It wasn't anything necessarily evil. It wasn't anything nefarious. It wasn't anything underhanded. It was just a decision that a couple of his friends made that kind of left him hung out to dry, feeling very disheartened and confused. Confused enough to say, where do I fit in? I just don't comprehend what God is doing. Now, all I can tell you is that, too, is part of life. Sometimes doors close, and so we just bow before the Lord who opens them, who opens doors and no man shuts, and who shuts doors that no man can open. Here's the second thing to think about, and that's that Christ honors faith, not strength. Faith, not strength. Verse 8, I know that you have little strength. You know, First Lutheran Church is by far and away the smallest church I've pastored. Among the four I've pastored in my tenure. I know that sometimes, really big churches, there's probably almost seems to be no limit to what these people can do. And sometimes what happens is small churches kind of view themselves as just small little churches, kind of a pimple on the behind of their community. Not much of a church. And they think that little churches, maybe like First Lutheran Church, that they really can't do much for the Lord. But that is such a bogus piece of perspective. It's not true at all. The church at Philadelphia had very little strength. And we can assume that they probably didn't have very much money. And they may not have had very many influential people who belonged to the church. But the one thing they had was great faith. And I I think that's a lesson for all of us. You know, I may not be the wisest person. I may not be the most eloquent person. uh, I may not have the most money. I may not have the influence of my neighbor. I may not be the most educated or well-connected or good-looking. I'll scratch that last one. But one thing I can do is I can trust the Lord as well as anybody. Let me ask you a question. What is it that God honors? Answer, faith. What is he looking for? Faith. What does he reward? Faith. How much faith does he require? Not much. Or if you want another language, Clara, porquito. Little bit. See, faith is like a mustard seed. Just a, a little itty-bitty dab, a little bit of smidgen of faith. Not the faith of many years, not the faith of, uh, of some deep knowledge. He honors, the Bible talks about, the faith of a little child, a simple faith. And I hope you notice two things in the reading about what Jesus said about the church. He said, you kept my word. He also said, you have not denied my name. See, the first thing involves holding fast to Jesus' words. The second thing means you're not embarrassed by that. Have you ever met anybody who's really embarrassed to be a Christian? I run into them a lot. I don't know, maybe some of you are slightly embarrassed to be counted as a believer. They follow Jesus, but they keep it to themselves. Oh, it's a private thing. No, it's not. Cut that out. Don't ever say something silly like that. I mean, let it show. 
Oh, well, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to cause any problems. I don't want to get any trouble in school. I don't want people at work to think I'm weird. I got two words for that. How sad. Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica, uh, and their opponents tried to have them arrested. And I love how the, the New King James Version of the Bible put it in Acts chapter 17. It said, those who have turned the world upside down have come to our town. How's that for an insult? These men who've turned the world upside down have come to our town. Would anybody ever say that about you? Or me? They meant it as an accusation. Guess what? I think it was really a compliment. I mean, what a great thing to have said about you. You're the kind of person who turned the world upside down. You know, I can't think of a better thing to say. I mean, I've had people call me a Jesus freak already. I just said, thanks. Cool. Not a bad deal. I tell you, Satan hates gospel preaching. And Satan hates gospel preachers. All you have to do is let a man decide that he's going to stand up for Jesus. Let him teach the whole counsel of God as it's revealed in the word of God. Let him firmly but kindly declare the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And he will have enemies before you know it. And guess what? Not all of those enemies are outside the church. Some of his fiercest critics will be found among those people who sit in their pews Sunday after Sunday to listen to what it is that he is saying. Been there, done that. Own the t-shirt. It happens. We live in a day when people, even quote, good church people, would prefer to kind of trim their sails so as not to offend the community. They want to be known as good people, good neighbors, fine and friendly people, and a safe haven for the hurting people. And you'd have to say, who would object to that? And I'll tell you, certainly not me. I don't object to that. But there is a fine line between wanting to reach the community and not telling them the full truth about God. Now, I think we all know that the gospel is the good news, but before it is ever good news, guess what? It is bad news. And unless we tell them the bad news, the good news won't seem very good at all. I read this about a guy named Francis Schaeffer. He's a theologian of some sort. And he one time said that if he were riding a train and somebody sat next to him who was an unbeliever and he only had one hour to share the gospel with him, he'd spend the first 45 minutes of his time testifying about sin and righteousness and judgment and he would only spend the last 15 minutes on the gospel. I think the believers at Philadelphia would have resonated with this. They cared enough about the truth that they made some pretty powerful enemies in their community. That's a mark of faithfulness to God. Here's the third thing. We're going to be vindicated, though. Verse 9, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, I love that, who claim to be Jews, they are not. They are liars. I will make them come and fall down. See, the synagogue of Satan were these Jews in Philadelphia who thought 
that it was kind of a cool deal to persecute other Christians. But Jesus said they're liars. And someday those liars are going to have to bow the knee in front of Jesus. One of the, one of the craziest things I ever remember uh, being in the Soviet Union a number of years ago was when somebody got up and read a scripture, Philippians chapter 2, 9 to 11, where it says that there will come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of all. And when that guy read that scripture, the congregation got up and they clapped and they cheered. They gave scripture a standing ovation. I thought, whoa, that has never happened in any church I've ever been in. It happened several other times. And and the reason later, talking to the Russian people, why? They had been under oppression for so long. And they were now free from that oppression. They were free in Jesus. And they realized that there will come a day when every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And guess what? Some people ain't going to like it very much. There are going to be a lot of people who are going to do it because they've been doing it their whole life. But there have been a whole lot of people who have been mocking Christians and bugging Christians and persecuting Christians, including Satan himself, who will be on his knees and he will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. But guess what? Too late. There will be a lot of people. Even Jesus said there will be people at the end of time. Lord, Lord. And Jesus said, don't know who you are. Don't know. This is why we do it now. We'll be vindicated. Hang on, you're going to be vindicated. Number four, we'll be protected. Verse 10, since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I'll also keep you from the hour of trouble that's going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on earth. Now, sometimes the best thing you can do in life, I mean, life seems really tough, really hard. Sometimes the best thing, all you can do is just endure patiently. I mean, spiritual warfare is not all roses and rainbows. I mean, sometimes it just means hanging in there when you'd really like to quit. That's why the Lord makes a wonderful promise to these people. He said, because you've been faithful, I'm going to keep my promise to be with you in tough times. I want us just to consider our obligation. I think that's maybe the next screen, verse 11. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. I don't, you can't read this without getting a sense that the early believers somehow expected Jesus to come back almost any time. But you know, what Jesus is saying to us, and this is for us too today, we are here to wait for his return. When's Jesus coming back? I don't know. Would I like it to be before the sermon is over? Sure. You probably would too. Tomorrow? That's okay. Before you go back to work tomorrow, Josh? Yeah, that'd be fine. We're out of here. But we got to wait. I may be dead and gone a hundred years before he comes back. I don't know. But in the interim, what am I going to do? I'm just going to hang in there. I'm going to overcome by faith. That's what verses 12 and 13 said. To him who overcomes, I'm going to make him a pillar. I'm going to write my name on him. You know, the, the challenge to overcome is one that you and I face every day. Not long ago, I was watching something on television, and uh, the guy who was hosting this show asked the audience to name a time when they had faced a challenge and responded in faith. Name a challenge that you responded to in faith. Now, most of them threw out big things like uh, facing surgery, uh, losing a job, 
a broken marriage, the, the death of a loved one in the family. And I don't doubt that those are really big things that will test your faith. But I sometimes wonder if we don't kind of miss out on some of the other really great changes, challenges of life, which is like, uh, I'll get out of bed this morning. Uh, I'll go back to work tomorrow even though I hate my job. Uh, I'm going to be kind today instead of a rude dude like I was yesterday. Or I'm going to forgive instead of get even. Or I'm not going to lose my temper today with my kids or my spouse. I think that's where overcomers are really made. It's in the day-to-day activity. It's pretty easy to realize that these were overcomers. These are not some sort of super Christians that had capes on and a big letter C or a big J for Jesus on their chest. These are people who just lived each and every day overcoming. And guess what, folks? We've got a lot to overcome. I mean, we've got temptations galore. There are frustrations on every hand. There are disagreeable people we have to deal with. There are difficult situations we have. There are unexpected setbacks we deal with. There are angry critics. Uh, There are internal discouragement. There's chronic pain. There are friends who aren't very friendly. And there are personal failures that are only known to ourselves. I mean, there are always reasons to give up. Always reasons to quit. Always reasons to make an excuse if we want to. But Jesus said, if you persevere, if you don't give up, if you don't just throw your hands up in the air and just say, I'm going to walk away from this mess, Jesus makes two very incredible promises. Number one, he said, you will be safe and secure. Imagine, these people who lived in a fault zone where earthquakes were always a chance, he said, you're going to be safe and secure. He met a lot of these people in Philadelphia. But Jesus is kind of saying, look, There are going to be all kinds of people who don't like you. That's okay. You've still got a place with me in heaven. I'll make you a pillar in my temple. And then, I love this, you're going to be named and claimed. You know, the power to name is really the power of ownership. I hate to say this to you ladies, but you know, when you got married, and she took your last name, Jason, you named it and claimed it. The power of ownership. Now, I don't want you to think for a moment, Christine, that this means he can say, you want to step over there and get me another beer. This is not the step and fetch it kind of relationship. But do you remember, what did Adam do? Adam was the one who named the animals, didn't he? Any number of times in the Bible, somebody says, they said to another person, and what is your name? Because if I can name you, I can claim you. There's ownership. I don't know if you remember any of these past sermons. Remember the white stone where when you get to heaven someday, you're going to have a name that God gives you that only God knows and that you'll only know? God has named you and God has claimed you. That means that all the old names won't make any difference anymore. Whether you are a doctor, a lawyer, a politician, a coach, or a teacher, or an athlete, or the richest man, or the most influential woman, or if you are a felon or a failure or hated or abandoned or humiliated or unappreciated or a liar or an adulterer. The blood of Jesus washes that all away. All of those tags are gone. Our good names won't matter and our bad names won't be remembered. We're all going to stand on the same ground, saved, redeemed, renewed, reclaimed, and renamed. 
I was going to bring my passport this morning. Like many of you, I have a passport that identifies me as a citizen of the United States of America. Inside it includes visas granting me entrance into places like uh, India or Africa or Haiti or Brazil. That passport says, it, 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 it uh, tells where I come from and the visa tells me where I can go. All believers have a passport as well. Citizen of heaven. And y'all got a visa stamped inside with the blood of Jesus that said, guaranteeing permanent entrance. No one can say you don't deserve to be here. We enter heaven by the blood of Jesus and his name. That's how we get entry into the heavenly city. That ought to encourage all of us. I mean, the world so often takes Christians for granted, sees no value in us, but God sees us as faithful servants. We may not have any security down here. That's why we put security signs in our front yard and have security systems on our houses. We lock our doors, fearing who God knows what. The stock market's going to crash and everything. But maybe this is the last thing I need to say to you today, friends. If you want eternal security, you can only find it in one name, Jesus Christ. And if you have security in Jesus Christ, one day you will have a new name and you will live in a new city that cannot be shaken. May God grant it. And he that has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit of God says to the folks at First Lutheran. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we that finish this time in your word, we pray that we would have ears, that we would indeed listen to what you say to the churches and to us. We pray that you will give us the strength of the Holy Spirit so that we might hang in there in tough times. We pray that you will give us times of refreshing and refreshment in your word, that we might boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray it in the precious name of Jesus, who on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body which is given for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. In the same way also after supper, Jesus took the cup. And again after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples saying, Take and drink. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it to remember me. And may God's grace and peace be with you always. And prior to our uh, communion distribution and other songs, let's join together in singing the Lord's Prayer. You'll find the words on the uh, back of your worship folder.